0: Hello friends, welcome back to Lingering on the Lectionary, where we reflect on the life of the churches, the local academy, and the rhythm of the church's liturgy. Thanks for being here. Today I talk with Dr. Janine Brown about her recent work on biblical hermeneutics, the literary beauty of the gospel narratives, and the challenge and rewards of interdisciplinary study. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome, Dr. Brown. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Today we're going to discuss some of your work in biblical hermeneutics and the study of the Gospels. Uh, But before we jump into our discussion, could you introduce yourself uh, for our listeners and tell us a little bit about your teaching and research areas?
1: Sure, it's so good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I've taught at Bethel Seminary, either in St. Paul or San Diego, for over 20 years. uh, back in St. Paul now. After a uh, stint in San Diego, um, we moved back a few years ago. Uh, I teach New Testament, <clears throat> and uh, my work has focused on the Gospels and hermeneutics. Of course, we have at Bethel is an introductory hermeneutics course, and so um, my work on the book Scriptures Communication really came out of teaching that and also continuing to teach it and refining my thinking. I also have some work around the integration of theology or New Testament and psychology, Christian formation. I've co-written with various scholars for for that work. Uh, And then recently I've been doing some work back in the epistles. I have a few journal articles from a long time ago on 1st Peter and I will be writing the New International Commentary in the New Testament revised volume on 1st Peter, finished a commentary on Philippians that was just published in March. Uh, in the Tyndale series. So I've been enjoying kind of re-engaging Epistle after doing a lot of focus on the Gospels in the last 20 years, mm-hmm.
0: really. Okay, great. Yeah, well, we're going to get to some of this uh, in a minute as well, but as as you described it there, uh, a lot of your work is interdisciplinary, um, mm-hmm. so different fields, as you mentioned before, maybe psychology, but also with the way that uh, the disciplines function in the contemporary context, Old Testament, New Testament, yeah. uh, different elements. What, what are some of the challenges to that interdisciplinary work? Mm-hmm. And, and what would you say makes that challenge worth it?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, the challenge is I can't be an expert in all those areas. So I need to let go of the, even the attempt to be the expert, to let the, and, to, and when I'm co-writing, I can let the other person be the expert. And that, that sounds like that's kind of easy, but when we've been trained to know so much about sort of one thing, it's easy to think that, you know, then we want to sound competent in every area. Well, we can't be. Uh, And you, you need to, I need to let go of um, that need to speak in all areas, but it's a kind of a risk because you're letting someone else look at your own work Mm -hmm. and they might see something that, they have a question about that you've never heard from someone in your own field. Uh, mm-hmm. so there, there's this kind of risk involved. Um, and I always say it's good to choose conversation conversation partners and writing partners who are trustworthy and also competent in their own area and not tending to overreach into yours. I mean, just kind of letting people mm-hmm. do what they're good at. It's been, it sounds like it's easy let somebody do yeah. what they're good at, but in, in academia, we've not been trained how to do that. Um, so I think it's it's so interesting to do that kind of work. And sometimes I have done some work in the Old Testament. And when I do intertextuality work, Old Testament and the New, I need to be conversant in Old Testament. But I, I do better when I pass things by my colleagues in the Old Testament rather than just kind of assume what I'm saying is going to resonate. Because the last thing I want is somebody in Old Testament reading something I've written and go, oh, what is she doing? Mm-hmm. You know, there's always that possibility. but to kind of forestall that as much as possible to say, Mm -hmm. no, i consulted with some folks um, that helped guide my thinking. I've always found it really helpful to collaborate.
0: The interdisciplinary task, as you're kind of describing it, um, it's not just about giving uh, different answers, but it's like a whole different set of questions uh, that are being raised.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Different vantage point, different fundamental assumptions of, of different guilds or disciplines just raise different kinds of questions. Um, mm-hmm. And there you know, there can be conflicting claims between these areas. Um, I've always worked with people who come from sort of the same faith kind of stance, generally Christian faith stance, mm-hmm. so that um, they're not necessarily functioning as a Christian psychologist, but they're a psychologist who has a Christian framework, um, may not be identical to my Christian framework, but it, it allows for some interesting points of convergence. But there's always difference to navigate, and mm-hmm. I think we're not being honest with ourselves if we don't realize that every time we enter into conversation with somebody else, difference will come up. Right. And figuring out how to be curious about difference rather than afraid of difference has been a lifelong journey for me.
0: Oh, yeah, that's that's a good word. I have a colleague who I um, run interpretations by mm-hmm. uh, when, when I do anything in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, and... So he he typically says, um, "Hmm, well." He, so it's like as long as I can get that "Hmm" first, uh, you know, then I then we can deal with the uh, the well part, uh, you know, as we move on. Yeah. Um, the also the challenge of the danger of doing interdisciplinary work is that in some ways you don't have a discipline. Um, well, you do have a discipline, but um, yeah. that's one of the challenges of you're not purely at home in a a specialized discipline um but that does broaden and uh, bring a lot of uh, insight and excitement to work as well
1: i advise students who want to do maybe doctoral work and they want to go really interdisciplinary because they've been excited about what we've done at bethel or something like that um make sure you really have a solid home base you know i worked Mm -hmm. a lot in the gospels i mean in both the new testament studies but also the gospels for a good 10 years before I started doing a lot of interdisciplinary writing I did some interdisciplinary teaching which is a great kind of place to practice things and to start to figure out what does this look like for me and for us but um, don't go without yeah you need to have a place where you're very kind of from which you your identity and your um, uh, insights kind of emanate if you put that right Um, it can't be just a I'm a little good at a little bit of that and a little bit of that, and a little bit of that because in the doctoral area, you know, we get to that kind of academia um, landscape that doesn't yet fly. I would put it that way, at least in the circles I'm a part of.
0: Well, that's a good, that's a good word as well for uh, students who are receiving the um, distilled or the, um, the, the results of years of thinking about the relationship between disciplines or uh, textual locations and uh, different uh, social contexts and then um, sometimes it's tempting for students to take that result and then run with it uh, but without the groundwork without that that depth Um, so that's a good word Oh, oh well last year a second edition of scripture as communication Introducing Biblical Hermeneutics was released, and so I was really happy to be able to talk with you um, just about um, how your perspective on how the book has been received and just how you've used it, but also mm-hmm. perhaps um, you know some of the things that you were able to update or change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, just as a general introduction to this, what, what are some of the core claims you make uh, in this book that kind of shape your approach to biblical hermeneutics?
1: Well, you can hear the primary one in the title, Scripture as Communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sits uh, in some ways in contrast, or at least some difference with a scripture as a kind of a code model of, of um, how language functions, that somehow um, the message goes out from a sender to a receiver and it's received, uh, and it loses a sense of there's this Back and forth communication. And even if we're hearing one side of a communication, but to realize that there is an audience that was intended that was to be very responsive to it. So that author, text, and message are kind of more tightly connected in a communication model. Um, and um, the context of the sending is really important. A code model. You don't really need a context when you kind of think of, I'm gonna send a code and they're gonna decipher it. But in a communication model, you have all sorts of context, especially as communication becomes more personal. Um, There's so much context that informs a particular statement. Uh, And that's why in the book, first edition, 2007, and second edition, 2021, I, I used family illustrations to talk about communication because that's where you see that kind of embedded meaning within context, which is something that a relevance theory, which is one communication theory, brings out that we have this implicit, um, lots in communication is implicit. Uh, I, I like to give the example of First Corinthians um, 7 verse 1, where Paul writes, now for the matters you wrote about. First time I'm hearing about that, right at, reading through Corinthians, right. you hear about an earlier letter, but that one, the letter that that has just come to him, presumably, that's caused him at least in part to write the letter, we have no idea what it says, except we do, 7-1, 8-1, 12-1, 15-1, we see now concerning, and it seems those are the moments where he's addressing what they said. We have to still kind of reconstruct the other end Mm -hmm. of the conversation. Um, Lots implicit going on in his his communication. Um, And it, it just helps us to press into what is he, wanting to communicate to the Corinthians who have written him a letter. It just brings you right into that act of communication. And I think that's a helpful way to frame biblical interpretation, the Bible and its interpretation. It helps on both ends of that. Um, A communication model also is, is the importance of knowing yourself as a reader is an important task for interpretation. It doesn't mean that what the reader thinks immediately, what I think immediately, is right uh, is a is a is a correct interpretation um but it does mean that we have to know ourselves in order to be better interpreters because sometimes ourselves get in the way other times ourselves show us something that's really valuable that somebody else can't see but we only know that if we really think about who are we as we read what are we bringing to the task what questions what assumptions about the text about ourselves about our communities um about faith just getting to know ourself is part of what i'm hoping happens when people read scripture: as communication
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i really appreciate that that's one of my favorite aspects uh, of the book uh and your just kind of whole approach to things because it it still keeps the text at the center of the project it's still the object of study but it clues us into uh which the discipline of hermeneutics is supposed to do this but it helps us understand what we're already doing when we read, yeah. um, and then a read a particular text. So the claims the claims you're making about scriptural texts is that they're intended for communication, and if that's true, there's a whole host of assumptions, presuppositions, and um, context that inform that written yeah. act of communication.
1: Well, it's you know sounds so complex. And, and but as I say in the book, communication is very complex and we understand it much of the time quite well. Although sometimes something gets gets in the way. I was having an email exchange with someone and, and there was clearly sort of a lack of understanding of a piece. And I had to interrogate myself. Am I am I not being clear and how? And and is it not about so much information as emotion or you know, I mean those kinds of things can interfere, but often we just communicate really well without a lot of trouble. Now we're looking at an ancient text that was written in different languages and different cultural contexts. So it's going to up the ante in terms of complexity from our perspective, but I really t- truly believe we can understand the Bible. You might think well you wrote a whole huge book that implies maybe it's hard to understand, but I want to say yeah. no. We have we have access and ability to interpret and let's make the most of it by doing kind of good things as we read bringing good mm-hmm. reading values to the ta- task.
0: Right yeah and one of the other that you mentioned um using family illustrations mm. um was very helpful. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. um I was gonna ask you later what are some favorite insights or surprising mm. discoveries from the writing process uh but this this would be one of my favorites uh, mm. parts of the book uh, is the broad application of these insights um so thinking <laughs> about the role of the discipline of hermeneutics. Uh, in all of life, like yeah. interpersonal. Yeah. So studying biblical hermeneutics is going to make you a better conversation partner. It's going to, it's going to help your marriage. Yeah. I tell my students, uh, my freshman students, this will help your dating life. If you think about the nature of illocutions, perlocutions, mm-hmm. and um, great. Like, well, sh- he said this, but I feel like it was meaning something else. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, it helps you de- unpack that, nice. right? Well, that's a good way to get freshmen to read my book, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. It, you know, I had a student. Um, I teach master's students. I had a student um, who's a pa- children's pastor. What well, quite a while ago had read the book. Was reading the book. Was in the process of reading the book at a coffee shop. Somebody in her, you know, a personer, a person who whose children come to the, the ministry she led came up and was talking to her. And she said, I was listening to them differently because I had just read your chapter on the reader. And there was this thing going on where she was being a better listener because she was reading this book on scriptures communication, that's mm-hmm. communicative part of it. And I, th- I thought, well, that was an unintended consequence of writing that book, but it's a lovely one. I completely right. affirm that this is a great thing, that we think more about who we are in the process of communicating. And that we listen better to what people are saying as they communicate mm-hmm. and what they're doing, like you say, not just saying. So this
0: is a, a particularly memorable um, example early in your, I think it's either in their introduction, perhaps, or chapter one. I think it's the introduction when um, talking to y- your daughter and she's giving you a series of statements mm-hmm. about um, about God and, a, mm-hmm. a, and that God doesn't exist. And you're kind of asking Oh, well, do you mean that we can't see God or that, um, you know, we don't? Uh, so, what you were saying was she was making a series of de- declarations, but it was really a process of um, asking questions or testing okay. things out. Um, and right. that's the, Libby.
1: That was Libby, not just on that topic, but all sorts of topics. She would not ask many questions. Kate asked questions all the time and Libby hardly ever asked questions, but she would try to test out these things. And she mm-hmm. wanted conversation. She wanted to clarify. Um, Yeah. It was this, this whole idea of her friend was describing God in sort of phys, very physical attributes. And she was like, I don't know if that's right. And she's like, what, seven or eight, mm-hmm. I don't know what it was, but yeah, she was testing out that stuff. And it well, was and a that... question asking process. I had to hear it that way, or I would have just you can't say right. that, or I mean, I don't think I ever say that to my daughter. But <laughs> you know, that's well, a helpful way to converse. But.
0: Some of the payoff of the communication model of meaning is thinking through. There are a series of uh, elements that equip you as a uh, equip you as a hearer of that to understand what was going on. Yeah. So, like the fact that you were in a relationship, the fact that you had knowledge of her disposition. Uh, it helped you. And so working through like relevance theory, or even some of the elements of speech acts theory are yeah. yeah. thinking through my daughter, Claire, yesterday, she, she, she's been doing this all week. So we've had to kind of address it, but she she walked out on the porch and said, I'm going to go get another yogurt, which is a declarative statement. But then she just kind of stands there and looks at me and then kind of inches towards the refrigerator so it was like, it was really a question or a uh, yeah. request. Um, and then, you know, she.
1: With a high level of, of agency. High yes. level of agency. So <laughs> you're she, figuring out how you, how you help her moderate that. Do you want to invite her to ask a question? Or right. yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and
0: oh. she usually says, uh, I'll take that as a yes. And then runs <laughs> off. It. So it's like, That's there's crazy. a lot going on there. And so yeah. hermeneutics helps you kind of unpack, uh, yeah. unpack that. So as you're thinking, we're thinking about biblical hermeneutics, um, one of the things that uh, comes up a lot is the nature of uh, intention, so authorial mm-hmm. intention,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Uh, whereas uh, in a previous era, authorial intention was all about getting into the mind of the author, uh, mm-hmm. thinking through his, mental, uh, his or her mental state, um, thinking their thoughts after them, but what is uh, what are some of the more recent uh, discussions uh, and then this approach to meaning in general, but also the way that biblical texts work? Um, so how would you describe an author's intention uh, yeah. in your approach here?
1: And I do um, land on the term communicative intention to to, bo- to distance myself sort of the, in the theoretical realm from this authorial intention that meant, we can actually understand the text better than the author understood the text. You know, uh, 19th century positivist kind of way of thinking about it. Um, so communicative intention really has the author and the text more wedded together. What I want to understand is what the author was communicating, both explicitly and implicitly in the text that they wrote. Um, I'm not trying to understand Paul when I read Philippians. I mean, certainly that, that there's a secondary kind of, of course, I'm going to understand him better. And that is a good thing at least in, as he wrote to the Philippians in Philippi Mm -hmm. mid first century. Um, But it's really about understanding that communication well, and you have to understand Paul and the Philippians better to to get that, to get there. Um, But it's not about understanding Paul better as if that's the goal of New Testament studies in Pauline studies, not to understand Paul better on his own terms in a sense, because we only have 13 letters from Paul at most, right? Mm. You're going to understand somebody after reading 13 of their letters plus some of a description in Acts of what Paul did in a narrative context, you know, in the narrative description. um, That's that's pretty uh, that's a pretty big order, tall order. And and so I think just understanding we're really trying to understand Philippians. And that means, of course, getting to know Paul and the church at Philippi and the city of Philippi as much as we can Mm -hmm. to understand how that context is informing the communication, you know. Um, it's a Roman colony. Does that make any difference in interpretation, which it's the only letter where Paul uses the language of polituma and polituomai, the, the language of citizenship or being a good citizen, faithful citizen? Um, I think so, probably. But, you know, so those things matter, but really it's about the communication, the text itself, and the author shouldn't be divorced from mm-hmm. that. At the same time, the author shouldn't be the the focus is if we're gonna get behind the text to the author, and that's the goal. Right. Um, So that, and so, and and again, I've talked about how the reader fits in that a bit, but Mm -hmm. um, trying to to stay really close to those three as we're thinking about communication.
0: Thinking about the object of study, uh, keeping it as not trying to understand everything about Paul, but trying to understand what Paul has written to the Philippians in this Mm -hmm. particular letter. which includes some of those other elements, right. but the the text itself is helping you navigate,
1: um, right.
0: What the what those other contexts need to be,
1: and the text constrains meaning, but it doesn't you know it doesn't just make it obvious at every turn exactly what the text means. Now, because the text it's four chapters long. So you say, right. well, well, what does this verse mean? Well, a verse doesn't mean anything without the other four chapters. So, uh, you know, so trying to figure out how to, to get your head around a hole. I try to get, mm-hmm. tell my students, you know, you, you can go and preach on Romans, you know, 12 verse one through, and verses one through three, and and kind of nail it, I suppose, in your own mind. But can you teach on Romans 12 through 15? And help people hear the whole or one through eight or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, how do you kind of grapple with texts more holistically? That gets into maybe Gospels and stories a bit more, yeah. where practice that more. But uh, I think that's part of it, too, is thinking about how we think about the text. Sometimes we think about right. such small pieces and there is no meaning in a word. I mean, there, there, I shouldn't say no meaning. There's a sense of a word, but, you know, some words like in Don't give us much, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, so how do we kind of really hear context as a crucial part of the whole as a part of the text as whole first Mm -hmm. and then as parts? That would be my emphasis, at least.
0: That's helpful. Uh, One of the things that struck me in your introduction to your Philippians commentary, um, lots of commentaries have uh, start with the typical historical um, introductions or historical context. Are some of the methodological issues or the structure of the commentary. Uh, and then others emphasize the theology, uh, but not as many forefront some of the hermeneutical assumptions that are being made. So I thought that was a really helpful uh, way of starting your commentary uh, by just laying out some of the inevitable hermeneutical positions you're taking uh, right there in the, the introduction that everyone is, ta- is utilizing, but not often. Are not always uh uh, laid out Uh, one of the things uh, you mentioned there in relation to it reminded me from our conversation here uh, you mentioned that historical reconstruction is necessary and inevitable but you also note the importance of carefully considering how that background information or that historical context is utilized which then becomes a hermeneutical task um, so you lay out the the difference between under constructing the context and over constructing the yeah. context. Um so how would you how do you navigate between those two categories? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. does the does the notion of like implied author or audience help you help you do mm-hmm. that?
1: Mm-hmm. I, I probably do it very poorly a lot of the time, navigating between the two. Because we tend to lean one direction or another often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about that over-constructing, under constructing also in scriptures, communication. So for generally, for any kind of text, it's easy to under-construct. And then we'll just bring in our own context and fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll think the Philippians are sitting in pews in the church. I mean, I, again, I don't think any of your listeners are thinking that. But, you know, it's easy to default kind of the way we know church rather than house churches. Are there one or two house churches in Philippi? Are they led by Yodia and Syntyche? Um, or one of them, or, you know, I mean, it's just you know, all sorts of interesting questions to think about. Um, you know, does Epaphroditus have a role in one of them that's, or is, it just, is there just one house church, which might hold mm-hmm. yeah, you know, 35 to 50 people, you know, might accommodate that many. So just starting to have, use your historical imagination to think about that setting. And are, are they made up of all Roman soldiers who now retired? No, probably not at all. I mean, probably less than half, from the Roman military, according to to Peter Oakes in his construction, but just asking the questions helps us to say, oh, we're not in Kansas anymore. I have to think a bit differently, um, and yet I can't. I I don't want to take one part of the text and and rely on, you know, one particular reconstruction, and it can only mean this because of this, and then then you've tied sort of, you've maybe over constructed. And we have to do the construction, the reconstruction. But how how do you kind of not put all your interpretive eggs in the one basket? Mm -hmm. It's tricky. It's um, sometimes easier just to ignore the context, which is then under construction. So that's why going back and forth is tricky because it's like, oh, my goodness, how do we 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 can't know all of this. We don't have to know all of this to do a good job of interpreting but we have to take into account what we know. We have to mm-hmm. you know know that the Roman imperial cult was a viable, not just viable, was a normative kind of expectation within first century Philippi. That makes a difference to listening to language of savior and Lord, I think, in the text, especially given clues that um, allegiance and civic allegiance is uh, on the table, 127 and following. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, but figuring out how to do that and how how much to kind of read, you can put between the lines, read what's implicit, uh, is a better way to put it. Probably that's just Mm -hmm. tricky. Yeah, I think. And I loved I loved writing that little bit in the beginning of the Philippians commentary because I I heard a few Philippians commentators talk a little bit about their hermeneutical assumptions or their way of going about things. Marcus Bachmull and uh, Elsa Tamas and I thought that I I need to have that. You know, if anybody needs to have it, I, I me mean, I just love writing sections that talk about hermeneutics on, mm-hmm. in any project I'm using. Let's step back from what we're doing and saying why are we doing it, how we're doing it. That's right. really what that section's about. Yeah, it's not the only way to do a commentary, even though the same parts will be there. But how I go about filling those parts is different than in other commentaries, and that's and not yeah. fully distinct. But you know it has more resonance with one maybe one way of doing it than another i want to talk about that i want to let people know who i am as i come to the project mm-hmm. so when you're reading the text the author and text together of the philippians commentary you have a sense of what how to understand my text better because you know mm-hmm. a little bit more about what in in invigorated my work
0: yeah yeah and i think laying out some of those categories briefly is helpful uh, for readers and scholars, as we're thinking about, we're actually using uh, in making those hermeneutical decisions, even if it's, um, even if it's not something that we're consciously doing, or as part right. of our method, we're still yes. going to be making those uh, hermeneutical decisions. Yes, yes,
1: we all have a hermeneutic, no matter what.
0: Well, I, we, let me transition us to talking about your uh, book on narratives, because we'll, d- We'll just spend all the time talking about uh, hermeneutics. Uh, I, love I could this do, and it sounds
1: like you could do too.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, in 2020, uh, you published the Gospels as Stories, which introduces uh, a narrative approach to the Gospels. So, in this book, what do you mean by narrative criticism as a way of getting at the uh, the meaning of the Gospels, and how might this approach differ from other common approaches? Uh, to reading biblical narrative in particular.
1: Yeah, narrative criticism or narrative analysis in um, the Gospels really, and and in biblical narrative generally, really developed in the 1980s. Uh, um, Different people did a narrative critical read of each of the Gospels, different folks. Um, And It's gone through a refining process, I would say in the last few decades. In other words, it kept on being valuable, but it it morphed and tried to be a little bit more historically oriented because at first it was kind of ahistorical. Um, But the the idea was that you'd look at biblical stories, biblical narratives in their storied shape. So pay attention to things like plotting, how the story is plotted out, characterization, how characters function, and then um, themes or theology. And really, Uh, Chapman's, and this is from literary criticism, um, kind of fundamental distinction between a heuristic device, between the story and the discourse Mm -hmm. of the narrative was a key lens for thinking about how to interpret narratively. Um, So the story level, things we are just so used to paying attention to, setting, character, plot, so the conflict where the climax is, all that stuff. Um, And then the discourse level is, the level where themes really start to emerge and and the author's shaping of the whole comes through. So characterization, not just plot, but plotting. Assuming that Luke, for example, plots his way through the story, he does it differently. He has this really long travel narrative right in the middle that extends, far extends what Mark has or even Matthew has in that section of Jesus to Jerusalem. Um, What's he doing there? What's the intention? So uh, the discourse level really starts to ask questions of the author or in, the, in narrative because of the implied author. The sense that we have an author implicit in the narrative, not Luke as a person outside of the story, but what is the uh, narrator doing within the story? Um, that's a really helpful two kind of heuristic devices, two levels. And I, my students use it routinely to kind of plot and theme plot and theme, what's happening on the plot level, what's happening on the theme level, um, so that we can see kind of the bigger overarching thematic and theological motifs that run across a gospel. You know, other earlier approaches like form criticism, early 20th century, um, really pointed attention away from the holes toward the individual units, pericopes they're called in the gospels, that um, looked at how they were used in the early church, quite apart from one another. Um, the Baileus is famous, string of pearls cut the strand, pearls go everywhere, string them back on. Doesn't really matter where a story comes, just interpret its usage within the early church context, early, early church. Um, Redaction criticism started to look more at the whole, but still did that assuming we looked at the source. So if you're understanding Matthew, you have to understand Mark and how Mark is being used in Matthew. Uh, But redaction criticism introduced me to the, the idea that there are themes here. Matthew's actually doing something. Matthew is an author, a theologian. uh, And that, for me, um, set the tone for narrative criticism, which I learned about after redaction criticism. Mm -hmm. And I think it really piggybacks nicely in some ways, even though they're not identical by any uh, stretch. Um, So, and it is the case that narrative criticism, I think, fits what we hear, at least in some Christian writers, early Christian writers, about how the text was used. Justin Martyr, 156, this is my first footnote. He writes that in the church gatherings on Sunday, quote, the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. So Matthew was read on its own terms as long as he could. First two chapters, first four chapters, first ten chapters. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the reading Gospels as wholes seems to have been, or at least as much as you can, um, seem to be a we reading practice versus taking a few verses or a mm-hmm. um, passage, maybe eight verses, and thinking that that's, that's the boundary we need to pay attention to when we as a church read scripture. I don't know that that was the ancient practice. It doesn't seem to be at least from one, one author. Um, mm-hmm. So why not think more holistically? So that's kind of the book in a nutshell, and I walk through plotting, and then I give an example in Luke, and I walk through characterization, I give an example in Matthew, disciples, and then I walk through intertextuality, so Old Testament and the New, and walk through examples in John, and then think about narrative theology, and walk through Mark as an example.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful that one of my favorite features of the book is the way you structure it, um, as you what you just described moving from a, a theoretical chapter to an exegetical chapter case mm. study, um, and then back and forth as you're introducing a new concept and then showing in a particular gospel uh, in a particular technique um, how that shows up. I think that's hel- I, very helpful pedagogically, uh, but also just even in um, in our in my thinking and practice as we're thinking about how do how does hermeneutics function. Uh, on the ground as we're actually trying to grapple with biblical texts.
1: Yeah, and um, I had sketched out plotting, characterization, um, intertextuality, Old Testament and the New, and then narrative theology. And I pivoted back and forth on which ones I was going to do for which one. You know, of course, I know Mm -hmm. Matthew the best. I've written a few commentaries and um, did my dissertation there. So it's like, okay, I could do that for each chapter, but that's not going to be, you know, I wanted to really highlight and spotlight one book per. And, and Luke is probably my my least, the one I, I know the least of all the four Gospels. I've done more work in John and Mark, it's similar to Matthew, and I've done more work in Mark. So, you know, it's like trying to figure out where to, so I, I kept on going back and forth and landing in different places. So I'm mm-hmm. glad where I landed, but it, it is kind of fun to think about how I've written a chapter on plotting in John, mm-hmm. you know, because that really says, do I know kind of that the book of signs, the book of glory, but how do how this whole sweep moves, Mm-hmm. And and I have thought about that. And I have kind of a visualization of John's gospel similar to what I do, a visualization of Luke, part of Luke in the book. Um, so for me, it's about kind of capturing the whole again. Somehow can we capture the whole? You know, 21 chapters of John.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's easy to say, well, I can understand John 3.16, or I can understand John 2, 1 through 12, the wedding at Canaan, Cana, but um, can I understand all of John? Right. Well, no. So that's the good news is that I, I will never exhaust this task of understanding scripture better. Mm-hmm. But can I understand it better? Yes.
0: Another thing that I like about your book is the way it's um, it's relatively brief uh, with mm-hmm. short chapters, which students students always love. Yes. Um, but it uh, the two things, that constant move from theory and practice is mm-hmm. a- helpful and instructive on its own. Uh, But then just thinking about the order of in theology, the distinction between an order of being, the way things are, but also the order of discovery, the way you Mm -hmm. actually come to that. um, So, like, I'm always struggling as a professor. I realize um, I love hermeneutics and prolegomena and method because if you work through an issue in hermeneutics, it's not just an insight. That can help you in a specific place but Mm -hmm. it's like if this is true then it changes uh it changes something about how i read all texts not just in in particular texts so thinking about this book could have been structured part one method part two Mm -hmm. um, exegesis but it also is showing a little bit about uh very quickly the process that we usually go through as readers where it's method and practice, sometimes i'm I'm learning my method during my practice, and sometimes yeah. I'm learning method, shaping method, and then recognizing the implications of uh, my reading. Um, so structuring it in this way, I thought that was it was a really helpful way to kind of try to bring bring together some of those uh, yeah. realities that we we do yeah. as as readers. Yeah.
1: I think you're right. That's really helpful. And I do put quite a few illustrations in the theory chapter so start to work it out start to work it right. out. But then to really say oh, just let's land in John and think about the Old Testament. And I mm-hmm. just have picked a couple places so lamb of god and then a creational re, creations renewal in John. Um, and I, I you know picked places where I've done some writing. I have a journal article mm-hmm. on creations renewal in gospel of John, So yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Um But some places it was brand new, like Mark in theology, narrative theology. I hadn't dipped into that other than through a friend's dissertation during my whole Mm -hmm. dissertation process and draw draw on his work. um, And it gets cited. So um, because he just had such an interesting look at how is it that theology develops narratively. Right. How does story tell theology? Mm -hmm. I think that's just still such an interesting question that I'm kind of just beginning to dip my toe in.
0: Yeah, in, in particular, um, uh, I appreciated that chapter you mentioned on Mark as you're thinking about a, a narrative that sometimes, at least popularly or anecdotally, gets tagged as, oh, this is the historical one. This is the, um, this is just the, just give me the facts, ma'am, and mm, then uh, yeah. the others uh, are the theologians, uh, but seeing how Mark is communicating at the level of the whole uh, mm-hmm. Thinking about so as a reader, even just some of the things you noted in there, it's like here's uh, a lot of discourse, like in chapter thirteen, and then all of a sudden you realize at some point it's it's been a while since Jesus has spoken, or that, mm-hmm. and it's like uh, in one sense it's a choice of what happens in the narrative, but thinking about the authors as good authors as yeah, they're communicating these things, like oh, there's a reason why. The dialogue stops here, or it just gets interspersed here, or so. Some of the uh, the way that you structured the book as well is helpful uh, in that you, if you see this pattern in this one place, that it kind of immediately triggers. Oh well, what would that pattern look like in the Synoptics, or what would it look like in John, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. does this take also place in the prophetic history? You know, so some of those. Right, um, seeing
1: the bigger picture pieces help you to, yeah, I think help you think structurally about a work, and structure is crucial to intention, it's not the only thing, but, you know, that the way something's structured gets us started to think about what is an author up to, Mm -hmm. so I think that's, yeah, that's really true, Um, yeah, and I was just thinking of your, your, your thought that, um, you know, kind of this new way of conceiving of the how, you know, hermeneutics, impacts than what we're seeing and and that really happened for me when I read Richard Hayes's work on echoes Mm -hmm. from Old Testament into New and Ricky Watts did that for Mark and you know so other people were talking about this as well this idea that you can with just a few words um, sometimes depending on the the prominence of a text echo a text and and that's where my creations renewal and gospel of John comes up and says it's not just in chapter one of John that we see Genesis but also in chapters 19 and 20 behold the man 19 when Pilate says that about jesus evocative well she thinks he's a gardener Mary thinks jesus is a gardener what does it mean so if any one of those on its own isn't going to go genesis 1 and 2 but you get enough of them and then you get the he breathed on them with that little more specific word in chapter 20 verse 22 i think Mm -hmm. when they gave him the spirit and then the breathing on and giving life and just in genesis 2 so there's this this interplay back and forth. And that really came out of Hayes's work and others who affirmed it said, you know what, we need to be thinking about echoes and not just citations Mm -hmm. and really rather large illusions. And the line between allusion and echo might be kind of a thin one. But um, Mm -hmm. that was just very uh, formative for me hermeneutically. Uh, And I still want to check and say, well, let's not find something that's not there. Uh, but, you know, but, of course, that's in the eyes of the beholder to some extent. But it, it is mm-hmm. the case that there are some ways, and I've developed some kind of guardrails to think about that with. Metalepsis is that that idea of taking something mm-hmm. and echoing it and maybe transposing it. Um, and thinking about guardrails that help us not just see anything we want in a text, but at the same time realizing the New Testament writers are steeped in their scriptures, which is
0: mm-hmm.
1: the the Septuagint to the Old Testament. So.
0: One of my other favorite chapters is one that reminded me of your earlier work, uh, Matthew's characterization of the disciples. uh, Yeah, that's my dissertation
1: in easy form, chapter.
0: Yeah, yeah, and also the role of misunderstanding uh, Mm. in the Gospels. I remember my first encounter with your work was, I think, back in two thousand eight. I was uh, in a doc. I was. I remember reading your monograph in a doctoral carol, uh, working through uh, kind of the way you were introducing the disciples and then uh not only because even your subtitle of your um, dissertation your monograph of the uh, the disciples and narrative perspective the portrayal and function of the disciples so of this characterization so thinking not only how they're portrayed but the new thought to me then was how does this portrayal function which is kind of going back to your um the point that you drew about stories as discourse so not only is oh i see peter uh, is constantly you know has his foot in his mouth but then that was one thing that i had known but then at when asking the question well what what might matthew or uh, the author of mark luke or john be doing with right. this particular particular characterization um that was really uh illuminating and i remember thinking uh just know sitting in that doctoral carol thinking i put your book down and i thought the biblical narratives are so rich yeah because um, because you were doing you know like 300 pages on a particular characterization uh, of the disciples and it was and it's something that i think your book does as well is like if you see this tool you see this pattern or yeah. this textual feature then it it has a a double function of one, it convinces you that oh, there's something here, and it gains insight. But it also kind of shows you, oh, if this is true on this point, what might else be true of yeah. this? You know, yeah. It, it kind of convinces you that uh, there's a lot more treasure and beauty to see in the uh, literary uh, text uh, than than we might have realized uh, before taking that deep dive. Yeah.
1: And the whole, the speech act kind of coming back to that idea that texts not don't just say things they do things. So the question of function really comes out of that. You know what what is the function and what what does Matthew intend this portrayal of the disciples where they don't quite get it all the time. They get some things they don't get other things. They have little faith. There's a whole kind of variety of features to their portrayal. But what does that how does that function for the reader? the implied reader, the reader that Matthew intends to be reading, so that original audience, you want to think of it somehow like, at least shaped in part like that. Um, what does, yeah, how does it function? Uh, and there are many different answers given within Mathian scholarship on that. So I was really trying to kind of say, how can we think about this kind of constructively? Um, are, are they just sort of a mirror of the first, of, of the audience? I'm going to shape the disciples just like mm-hmm. you, Matthew audience. Right. Uh, that was one person's read. I think that was just not complex enough in a sense to say, no, but what about it's meant to shape the ideal reader, not just say, here's what you look like. Right. Get better faith. Cause you have little faith. That might be true. That's true of a lot of audiences who read Matthew, including myself. Um, but, but, but instead, how does it kind of um, prod- provide um, a foil to a different way of being? And also encourage followers of Jesus, because often readers will put themselves who are believers in Jesus, will put themselves in the place of the disciples and say, Yes, mm-hmm. I resonate with Peter and with the 12. Um, when Jesus continues to work with them, though he calls them those of little faith, as he continues to work with them, and even after they flee, when he's arrested, he calls them back, tell them to come meet to <laughs> me in Galilee. And even then, at the very end, they worship, but some waver, Mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, that kind of portrayal invites me to think about Jesus's continued, continued commitment to me. And that the very end of the gospel, it's not um, all the authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go take it and check back in in a month or so. He says, no, Um, and I will be with you. Jesus goes with them. That becomes the important sort of connector between everything that's been going on, and the fact that they don't come out stellar stellar characters. Instead, Jesus continues to be with them. It's been what's characterized them Mm -hmm. all the way through the narrative. When they've been doing their job at all, they are with Jesus, and they flee at the very end when he's arrested, and they don't fulfill that role and yet Jesus calls them back and they are with him at the end and he will be with them. And I think that kind of helps me think about discipleship in a nutshell and Matthew and how the disciples fit in but aren't sort of just a mirror of discipleship. Be like the disciples even right. when they fail. Well, I don't think Matthew wants that message going out. Instead be like them when they do well and they're a foil when they don't and Jesus is the one that goes with you and that mm-hmm. you follow and then you emulate as much as you possibly can
0: right yeah you can correct me if i'm wrong here as well as uh, one of the things that was uh, insightful about kind of your approach too is that kind of what we were talking about before the complexity of the portrayal of there are times when the uh narrative is encouraging us to identify with the disciples but there are also times when the narrative is encouraging us to distance ourselves from the response of the disciples um so i just thought that was uh and kind of the idea of the implied reader um sometimes uh, you know there's a gut reaction to any talk about the reader because of uh, reader response uh theory Mm -hmm. of meaning or something like that um one of the things that this conversation has helped me see is the the textual intention or the author's portrayal of the reader's response. um, so that the the, uh, the reader's uh, role could be something that's envisioned or shaped by what the author is actually doing. So, yeah, there, there's the a
1: act- textual component to the audience's response.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I that the text um, isn't.
1: We don't have author and text, and now readers do willy nilly with the text. Of course, readers can do that, but that within the text itself, there's an intended response. There's an intended, Mm -hmm. um, and and that becomes a a little less. I mean, you can you can give some textual reasons for maybe a a few different responses. You know, it Mm -hmm. it becomes less tethered to a singular kind of way of reading. Um, Right, but I do think. And I read this in Paul now as well. Um, the idea of of what does Paul? How does he tap into the pathos of his readers? When you think about ethos, logos, mm-hmm. and pathos in ancient rhetoric, how does he tap into pathos? What does he want his reader to do with this? And how mm-hmm. does he? How does he persuade? Part of that is through pathos, which is a little, little trickier because you're saying how might this have landed on that original audience? But I think it's a helpful question to ask. It's not the only question, it's not the first question, but it is a helpful question to ask.
0: Right, and within a a confessional approach as well, um, the first step of identifying or understanding the author's expectations of the reader or the ideal reader, the actual, a, a given actual reader has, you know, has a dilemma to face, you know, to be or not to be the ideal reader. Do I want to be, you know, so seeing that literary feature, that hermeneutical insight as a process of, of our, of, of a person's discipleship, um, who is seeking to understand what a text is uh, expecting me to believe or uh, make me feel either disturbed or uh, delighted um, and then grappling with, either struggling or uh, seeking to uh, align my uh, disposition or desires to the disposition and desires of the ideal reader or the implied reader, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, ha- has a few different directions that it might uh, might go.
1: Yeah, no, I agree.
0: Well, I appreciate your discussion of these uh, scriptures communication and the gospels as stories. We've, ca- we've really kind of just touched on a few things. We could mm-hmm. spend several more hours doing this, but I, no one would listen, and I, I won't keep you for doing that. Uh, but I do have one more reflective question that, um, sure. that I like to ask, um, and this relates to just kind of uh, a, ge- a general thing, but there, there's a lot going on in our world that is discouraging, uh, but what is something that gives you hope?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's such a large question. I had to think on that for a bit, but I think one of the things, and I've just been writing about it again in some work I'm doing, um, is the biblical theme, and I would say, I look at the New Testament part of this, uh, theme of wisdom. So um, I've worked on chapter 11 of Matthew, where Christ emerges, Jesus emerges as Messiah, as God's wisdom. Um, And I think growing up in my own view of the Bible, I had a really particular view of the Bible as roadmap, rap, map, roadmap say it again, roadmap for my life. You know, kind of like there's a small target you could easily miss, I'm looking for that. And the Bible becomes this sort of singular tool for finding that one spot. That was a little bit stressful, I just would say, growing up in anxiety producing. Mm. Um, but um, something like mapping coordinates to find the exact location on a map. Um, but I've, I've come to view the Bible um, written to believers long ago, but intended for me and my community um, to be studied and followed with the guidance of the spirit and with this idea of Jesus with us, Matthew theme, as the source of wisdom. So I feel like um, an invitation for me has been to to move away from um, or to to move to a, a view of wisdom that's about seeking wisdom daily in life, in prayer and scripture, you know, um, and two texts that guide that for me, uh, Galatians 5.25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. I just find that very interesting that we've already lived by the Spirit, so keep in step, and it's this kind of nimble. I've got to find, find where the Spirit's going and following, because sometimes the Spirit might take a really quick left turn. And I've got to be ready to go. <laughs> My dad used to walk around in the snow in Minnesota with his big boots. And he had a large, long gait, and mine was shorter. And I jump after him into his spots in the deep snow. of all, I misread which way he was going and yeah. <laughs> snow all the way up the leg. Ah. So this, that picture always goes with me with this idea of wisdom in life is following the spirit. Scripture guides us. And Jesus in our midst. Um, And that just feels to me like a hopeful way of thinking about how is it that God is working in this world and working in my life and working in my community. And then I go back to Matthew 11, when Jesus says, learn from me, for I am lowly and humble in heart. Mm -hmm. Learn from me. So learning from Jesus, um, informed by scripture, led by the spirit, it just feels like a broader invitation than study the Bible so I can find the one thing I'm supposed to do with my life. That was my view as a young person, maybe. Uh, it's it's helped me to think about what it means to navigate in a world that doesn't have, is pretty complex and doesn't have, like you say, um, hope sitting at every point or happiness or joy just kind of exuding around the edges. There are moments of that, certainly. So I've, I've just found it helpful to think about what does it mean to live wisely with Scripture, through the Spirit, with Jesus being the one I continue to learn mm-hmm. from. That's my that would be my answer to your very good question,
0: yeah, thank you for that. That's um, I like the way that you connected our personal walk um, with the engagement of the scriptures and mm-hmm. hope for the hope for the future in in our daily life. so not disconnected from uh, the things that we're doing day by day, mm-hmm. but directly related to. Uh, the way that the scriptures and uh, Jesus guides us. Um, so uh, a beautiful picture of hope uh, there. Hmm. Well, thank you for your work in hermeneutics, the Gospels, and the epistles, mm. uh, and I appreciate you taking the time uh, today uh, and sharing some of these uh, insights in this discussion Thanks. with us.
1: Thank you, Chad. It was really great to be here. Take, take care.